Uh, it's been said that the purpose of every sermon is uh, twofold. First, to comfort the afflicted, and second, to afflict the comfortable. Uh, I will leave it to you to decide which category you fall into and uh, whether you receive this word today as a word of comfort or, or as an affliction, but, but that will be up to you. If you've been awake at any time over the last 30 years or so, you know that um, we've had some pretty exciting times in America, and uh, it, it just rolls right along, doesn't it? Uh, it's been a period of ultra-rapid social change. Um, when I was teaching, I often struggled to get my 18- and 20-year-olds to appreciate this fact, but the truth is that they've always lived in a world where the pace of change was, by my standards, extraordinarily fast. So if you're of a certain age, and you don't have to be anywhere close to as old as I am, uh, you can appreciate this fact that um, it, it just seems as though things are changing much more rapidly than they ever did before. It seems like you go back a few decades and things were quite static. They weren't, but it seems that way. You will not be surprised to hear me say that not everyone has regarded the social change as completely positive. Uh, in fact, um, this change has been accompanied by uh, extraordinarily heated debates about a great range of topics, racism, LGBTQ issues, uh, abortion, um, even some which a few decades ago were uh, literally not imaginable, uh, issues about gender identity, for example. Uh, I go back you know, 60 years, and, and such a thing would not even be conceivable for people. These debates have taken place in the context of extraordinary um, polarization as well. Um, there's a lot of talk of tribalism, of us and them. Uh, it seems as though the entire country is divided almost exclusively into two great camps with nothing but hostility between them. We see every day, like every hour, if you really follow the news, the politics of anger played out in, across a wide range of topics. It's as though the Soviet Union, having collapsed around 1990, we had to have something to be angry at, and so we decided to be angry at ourselves, and, and we've all found plenty of reason to do that. Well, what's the source of this anger? Um, it's a very complex social phenomenon. I'm not going to give an exhaustive analysis, but let me suggest one aspect, and that is fear. There's a great fear that something's being lost. Um, that there are nefarious forces at work taking something of great value from us, whoever the us happens to be. And of course, that varies, doesn't it? That more than 200 years of Christian heritage in America are being trashed as we lurch uncertainly into a post-Christian future. Well, in this anxious context, what are Christians supposed to do and what should we be thinking? Well, you know the common responses. One is apathy. There's nothing I can do. Things are too complex. 
It's all predetermined. Other people are in control. I'm going to sit on the sidelines and do nothing. I do not think that that's a Christian option, a legitimate Christian option. Another option that's very popular these days is simply confusion. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. Things are moving too fast. There's too much to get a, get a handle on. I don't know what to do. That's a very understandable uh, option. I find myself there almost daily. Well, let's look at the Bible. Maybe the Bible can shed some light on this. So um, let, me, let me call your attention to 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10. Now, I'm, sure, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure every one of you have read this within the last three or four weeks. But uh, <laughs> we probably have a couple of visitors, so just in case you haven't, let me quickly summarize these two chapters. It's much too long to read. This is the story of Jehu. Um, so, some quick context, some, uh, some background. Um, in ancient Israel, and we're talking about the 800s B.C., um, there came to be um, a felt need to create some political alliances with uh, neighboring countries. And so the king at the time, Ahab, uh, created an alliance with uh, the king of Tyre and Sidon, roughly modern-day Lebanon. And you know how these political alliances go. It involved economic trade back and forth and ambassadors. You know the whole thing, how that works. But it included one thing which proved to be highly problematic in Israel's history. Um, because in the custom of the day, um, Ahab married the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon. Her name was Jezebel. And as part of the political arrangement, the political relationship between the two nations, Jezebel was uh, allowed to bring with her um, uh, priests of her own religion. And uh, she was a worshiper of, uh, well, we usually call it Baal. That's not how they pronounce it, but I'll just do that. Uh, worshiper of the god Baal, B-A-A-L. And so she brought with her priests and all the paraphernalia necessary for her and her entourage to worship her own god, Baal. And this happened with the uh, permission, indeed the encouragement of the Israelite king, Ahab. Uh, well, as these things go, Ahab finally died and was succeeded by his son, Joram. And this is when our story begins. Because there was an element of resistance within ancient Israel. And the resistance was centered around, as the Bible tells it, around two prophets, Elijah and then his successor, Elisha. And these prophets and their followers were like implacably opposed to this policy. I mean, I don't know if they really cared much about the economic side of it, but they thought that the religious side of this was a complete disaster for Israel because it had sanctioned the worship of this false god within Israel. And so they set themselves to be opposed to Ahab and then finally his son Joram. Our story begins when the prophet Elisha tells one of his followers to go to uh, a, a commander in the Israelite army, a certain Jehu, and anoint Jehu, telling him that God has chosen him to be king and to overthrow Joram. 
He does. And uh, in, in, in just a few words, um, in these two chapters, uh, we get the story of the revolt. And um, it, it turns out to be a pretty bloody affair. Um, Jehu uh, kills the Israelite king Joram. He kills Jezebel, the mother. He kills the king of Judah because Judah is allied with Israel. He kills, um, well, in the words of, of uh, Second Kings, uh, he kills all the leaders, close friends, and priests associated with Joram. And then he kills all the people in Israel who worship Baal. Now, we're not giving any numbers, but it sounds like a lot. In Jehu's revolt, we see a, a recurring pattern in the Bible. Israel first falls away from God, and then a strong leader arises who takes dramatic and bold action to bring Israel back to God. It doesn't always turn out as bloody as in Jehu's case, but you get the picture. There's this pattern of a, a strong king, or would-be king in this case, who exercises extraordinary um, power, indeed in this case violence, to accomplish the goal. Um, so the strategy may be extreme, but the pattern sort of fits the pattern. Extreme circumstances, I guess, sometimes call for extreme measures. Now, this would not be a sermon if I just left it there, uh, because we need to connect it to where we are today. For many Christians today, there are obvious and ominous parallels between Israel in the 800 B.C. and, and where we are today. Uh, so I'll get the obvious point out of the way. Christianity is not today threatened with the worship of Baal. I mean, I'm sure somewhere in this land of 300 million people, there's probably someone out there worshiping Baal. But that's not the obvious threat, is it? But many Christians today are disturbed by the direction of society and morality in America. There is much talk, I emphasize much talk, of America moving away from God, of turning away from biblical principles. Um, the legalization of abortion in 1973 has come back to revisit us even today. Uh, the teaching of evolution in public schools, debates about gay marriage, gays in the military, changing gender roles, it's just a sample. Additionally, even if you move away from the social issues, um, we are undergoing in America significant demographic changes. Now, if you don't read public opinion polls and statistics as I do, perhaps you're not really familiar with this, uh, but the fact is that when we talk about a post-Christian America, uh, we're talking not just about social issues, we're talking about demographics. Um, a larger uh, per, as long as they've been keeping these statistics, I'll put that in there, uh, a larger percentage of Americans do not identify as Christian or particularly religious than ever before. Um, in fact, a few years ago, the statisticians created a brand new category of people, the nuns, not N-U-N-S, you know, female uh, members of monastery, but the N-O-N-E-S, people who claim to be none of the above 
If you ask them, well, are you Christian, Jewish, Hindu? No, none of the above. Um, as recently as, as 20 years ago, uh, this group was uh, statistically insignificant. Now, maybe they were there and they just checked the Christian box anyway, who knows. But as we arrive to the year 2021, something like between 22 and 25 percent of Americans now click the none of the above box. Doesn't mean they're hostile to Christianity. They just don't think of themselves as Christian. Um, the most recent statistics show that this group may be flattening out, but over the last 10 years, this was the, lar- the fastest growing single group in the religious landscape. So this is partly also what we mean when we talk about a post-Christian America. Additionally, as in Jehu's day, many Christians, like Elijah and Elisha, feel themselves to be uh, under siege, a persecuted minority. Um, Think of Elijah, who flees Jezebel, uh, goes to the desert and cries out to God. He alone, in all Israel, is a worshiper of God. Not literally true, but that's how he felt. I, I, as I listen to Christians talk today in various kinds of media, I get the same impression. Many Christians today have this feeling that Christians are fast becoming a minority, indeed a persecuted minority, even in America. In light of these similarities, uh, it's not surprising that in recent years, um, a very telling metaphor has crept into our Christian discourse. When, we, when Christians talk about um, the social sphere, the political sphere, there's a very critical metaphor that's been increasingly used. That's the metaphor of warfare. Um, perhaps the, uh, the opening salvo here was the 1990 address by Pat Buchanan to the Republican National Convention, where he said, among other things, there's a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Now, those are strong words, but uh, not, not atypical these days. Uh, more recently, uh, one of the protesters um, in the Capitol on January 6th had this to say, If it comes down to war, I'm going to be there. I'll be fighting on the front lines. God is roaming to and fro, looking for people. He says, whom should I choose? And I say, God, send me. I will go. And just like the vaccine is a prelude to the chip, protesting like this is a prelude to when we're going to go to war. We're going to pack up our bags. We're going to have to fight. Admittedly, that's a fairly extreme expression. I mean, not not that many Christians are sort of on the front line the way this woman is, and few Christians I know would express themselves with this sort of forthrightness. But this talk of warfare doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of a deep fear, a deep anger that something's being lost. Uh, Indeed, not just lost, as in misplaced, but something's being stolen. And it is the duty 
of Christians to get it back. Well, as this narrative goes, it seems as though Second uh, Kings 9 and 10, the story of Jehu, points inescapably to a Christian responsibility. America belongs to God just as Israel belonged to God, just as Jehu had to take dramatic uh, measures to bring Israel back to God. Christians today must do the same. Now, because we're Christians, we don't go to go out and kill people. So our strategy is going to be different. Still, it is our responsibility to undertake what Jehu did and bring America back to God using whatever power is available to us, whether it is the ballot box or public protests, whatever it is. This seems to be the inescapable conclusion. And yet... It is an old principle of biblical interpretation that we always compare Scripture with Scripture. That we do not build practice and belief on single passages, but we look to the whole Bible. And with that, let me call your attention to the book of Hosea, chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord said to him, in a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, again, I don't know the last time you read the book of Hosea. hope it hasn't been that long. It's a great book. You should read it. But this passage, this little verse, is a kind of speed bump. We're rolling along with 2 Kings 9 and 10. We're getting the point that God uh, demanded uh, dramatic action. Uh, We may not like the methods that Jehu used, but we agree with the end result. But then we come to Hosea 1.4, and we have to slow down, and we have to think carefully. We're not used to people being praised in one part of the Bible and then condemned in another part. And so we're being told here, think more carefully about the history of Jehu and what it is that God actually wants. Now, we notice that Jehu is condemned for the blood of Jezreel. And so we might say, well, the problem was simply the fact that he he killed too many people or he killed people at all. I think, however, that as we move through the Bible, we see that it goes deeper than simply the bloodshed. That the fall of Jehu was not simply that he killed people for the cause of God. It goes deeper. And with that in mind, I would like to look to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, one of the Beatitudes, the uh, next to last in the series of Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. So, I want to spend some time here thinking about what it means to be a peacemaker. 
especially in light of the story of Jehu and the situation that we find ourselves in today as Christians in America. Um, this passage, this call to be peacemakers, asks us to consider questions like, what does God's peace look like? How are we to make peace? Not just the what, but the how. And then, how do we as Christians use power, and how do we not use power for the sake of peace? Well, let's think about power for a minute. Um, first of all, let's get the easy point out of the way. It's obvious, I think, I hope, I trust it's obvious, we pray that it's obvious, Christians should not be using violence for God's kingdom. Um, I would not even mention this except for the small, inconvenient fact that in the past, indeed, Christians, well, we have used violence. There was that small matter of the Crusades about a thousand years ago. In the 1600s, Christians, mainly Protestants, got real interested in hanging witches and burning witches. So, although we probably regarded as repugnant that Christians would exercise violence, we've got to be honest with ourselves, well, we have. So, but I'll pass on from that. The real issue for us today is not violence, but power. And we may think of ourselves as powerless, but the fact is we all have some levels of power. Again, even if it's just simply things like voting. It's a kind of power. And so the issue that faces us is how should we use power and, and how should we not use power? Well, let's start with an observation, which goes back to what I said a few minutes ago. Many Christians today feel disempowered. Um, why? Well, go back a century. Um, I, I was not alive a century ago, but I've read about it. And what do we learn? We learn that um, American society was structured in a way that supported uh, a, a Christian agenda. Um, so uh, two years ago, right, 2019, uh, we had the 100th anniversary of um, the beginning of Prohibition. Now think about Prohibition for a few minutes. Prohibition was a sort of nonviolent Christian crusade that aimed to make a fundamental change in American uh, society and morality. Um, Christians used political power to pass legislation, indeed to change the Constitution. It was an amendment to the Constitution. Right? We used political power to effect a change in American society. Uh, looking back, it turned out to be not such a good idea. 
It's one of these things where it sounds like it's probably going to work at the beginning, but after a few years you realize, like, not only is it not working, it's producing really bad consequences that we never envisioned. And so in 1933, prohibition was ended through yet another constitutional amendment. But we don't have to look at something as big as prohibition. It worked on the smaller level as well. Uh, there were what were at the time called blue laws. Uh, throughout the nation, but especially in certain parts of the nation, uh, there were laws that banned certain kinds of activity on Sunday. Uh, banned the sale of alcohol on Sunday. Uh, why? Because there was a Christian agenda at work. So here's a case where state laws and local laws were you know, very obviously framed to support a Christian agenda. Here's an example of Christians using political power to change and to shape American society and morality. Well, of course, today the blue laws are pretty much gone. There's a few places here and there where you can't buy liquor on Sunday, but not many. The blue laws are pretty much gone. This is a, a, a case where Christians, many Christians, feel disempowered that Things used to operate according to our agenda, and now things are operating according to someone else's agenda, at least increasingly so. And we can find pockets where things still work our way, but if you look at the nation as a whole, eh, no one's really looking out for our agenda. In fact, a lot of people seem to be pretty hostile to our agenda. Sense of disempowerment. So whether we're talking about laws or judicial decisions or school board decrees or textbook choice or whatever it is, a lot of Christians in America today feel that they simply don't have a voice. They don't have power. And I think this is why the idea of warfare, of cultural warfare, is so appealing and so powerful today. Um, you know, I just think as you read, as you listen a lot of Christians feel that America has been invaded by hostile forces. What used to belong to us has been stolen. Christian culture has been uh, corrupted by secularism and, and other bad stuff. But what does Matthew 5, 9 call us to? To be peacemakers. And so how do we negotiate this territory between peacemaking and warfare? Well, let's look at the biblical idea of peace. Now, I'll start by saying uh, this is a very rich idea, the biblical idea of peace. Uh, nothing I say today will begin to do justice to the fullness of this idea. Um, I really just want to take one slice of the biblical pie today and focus on that. Um, and, and that slice is found in two New Testament passages, uh, one which was our scripture of the day in Colossians, the other in Ephesians. Let me read the Colossians passage again. Through him, through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And then... In Ephesians 2, he, Christ, is our peace. 
In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. The burden of these passages is that God's peace is about reconciliation, about bringing people, indeed all things, together. Uh, I want to elaborate just a little bit on the Ephesians passage. He has abolished, uh, that's not the first part. Um, he is our peace in his flesh. He has made both groups into one. Well, who are the both groups? So, a quick detour into Paul's ministry. Um, as you probably know, early Christianity was a Jewish movement. Jesus was a Jew. The twelve apostles were Jews. For quite a while, to be a Christian was to be a Jew who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But we then find Paul and others stepping forth with what at the time was a radical notion. And that is that God has called the Gentiles into unity with Christ. And they don't have to become Jews first. Now, today we take this for granted and wonder why it was ever an issue. It was an issue. In the first century, this is the greatest issue that Christianity faced. And for Paul, this was not simply a church growth strategy. Like, well, if we get more Gentiles, obviously we'll get more Christians. For Paul, this was the heart of God's gospel. Because God's great plan for the universe is to bring all things together. And so for Paul, it was not good enough to have congregations of Jewish Christians and congregations of Gentile Christians. There must be congregations where Jews and Gentiles came together. And not reluctantly, and not with concealed hostility, but in real unity. When you read Paul's letters, especially Galatians, you see how difficult it was for Paul to convey this vision to the rest of the church and how slowly this idea sort of caught on among Christians. But it tells us that God's project in the world is not about division, it is about gathering, about uniting. This is why uh, Galatians 3.28 is so important. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, not slave or free, not male or female. Because the world wants to divide people. It divides people according to gender, according to socioeconomic status, according to nationality and ethnicity. But in Christ, these things are overcome. And in Paul's vision, the church is to be the place where this unity of all things begins to take place. Now, 
Now, if this is persuasive, you can begin to see why the idea of warfare as a fundamental metaphor that's going to guide our practice is a problem. Because warfare is the supreme example of dividing people. Warfare only works if we have opposing sides. In warfare, there's winners and losers, gainers and losers. And so warfare is not going to affect the kingdom of God, at least to the extent that the kingdom of God is all about reconciliation. I kind of got to hit myself here. Give me a second. If we're to be peacemakers, I'm suggesting, we should cast aside the basic image of warfare. We're not at war with anybody. Except the spiritual powers, as is mentioned in Ephesians 6. But Ephesians 6 is very clear. The weapons of our warfare are not weapons of flesh and blood. They're not swords and shields. And they're not the ballot box and the protest. I'm not saying that Christians should not vote. I believe Christians should vote. I'm not saying that Christians should not engage in political protest. I think we actually should. But those are not the weapons of our warfare. It's fine to be at warfare with the spiritual powers, but when it comes to God's, crea- God's creatures, human beings, we are not at warfare. On the contrary, we're seeking reconciliation. And so in practical terms, victory for Christians is not about the success of some legislative agenda. It's not about getting our candidate elected to office. On the contrary, victory means being the church. Whatever happens to our plans, and you know eventually something's going to go wrong with our plans. It's just built into it. But regardless of what happens to our plans, we are victorious if we are authentically the church. That's why in 1 John we read that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Now, this often strikes people as very odd. How can faith be a victory? Keep in mind that in the Bible, faith means not only belief, it means as well faithfulness. It brings these together. If the church can be faithful, then we have won the victory. That faithfulness is the victory. It's not found outside that victory. That additionally means that the world cannot defeat the church. but we can defeat ourselves. 
If we fail to authentically be the church, if we fail to be the community of reconciliation, then we have defeated ourselves. But the world cannot defeat us as long as we are true to that calling. All right, let me start to wrap this up. So we live in a time when Christianity has become a, a kind of a mirror image of American politics. There are Christians on the left, there are Christians on the right. It will, has, probably has always, always been that way. It probably will always be that way. But the truth is, these days, increasingly, Christians identify themselves through their political commitments more than their theological commitments. If two Christians get into an argument about something, it's going to be much more likely they're arguing about politics than it is about theology. I'm actually glad people are not arguing about theology anymore. But it's troubling that for a great many Christians in America today, their primary point of reference for being a Christian is their political stance more than their theological convictions. Sadly, Christians today are not peacemakers. On the contrary, I think we're actually adding to the division. I think we're throwing gasoline on the fire. So what would it look like for the church to be an agent, God's agent, of peace and reconciliation? Uh, The answer is, I don't know. Because I'm not sure there are any really good examples to follow. Um, The current options, if you are a Christian congregation, the current options seem to be two. One option is just simply focus upon the emotional needs of the members of the congregation. You know, we, if, if you hang around American Christianity very long, you're going to get a sermon, maybe a lot of sermons, that go like this. Life is really hard, but if you hang in there with Jesus, it'll all be better someday. Well, uh, I, I actually kind of believe that in a way, but... That's not the church's fundamental message. But I think it's become the fundamental message in many churches. Like, life is really hard, but Jesus will help you attain emotional equilibrium if you just sort of, you know, stay with Jesus. The other big option these days is a kind of hyper-militantism, a hyper-politicized Christianity. And I will not belabor the point, but you don't have to go very far in the news media to find examples of that. I think the Bible's pointing us in a different direction. And so let's ask, what would it look like for Christians today to rise above angry politics and to be peacemakers? What would it look like for the church to be the community of reconciliation? Let me just suggest a few things in closing. Uh, One, I think the doctrine of creation tells us we should be involved. Sitting on the sidelines is not an option for Christians. 
God has chosen the church to be the agents of God in the world. We must be busy about that task of reconciliation and peacemaking. So doing nothing is not an option for Christians. At the same time, the doctrine of sin reminds us that even the best human endeavor is infected with corruption, pride, and self-seeking. And in particular, let me just draw attention to the paradox of power. Like wealth, no one ever thinks they have too much power. A little bit is never enough. If I've made, tried to make the point that Christians should use the power available to them, the ballot box and so on, but in the back of our minds, it's always the doctrine of sin. No one is ever satisfied with a little. And so we cannot seek power for its own sake. The purpose of power is not to dominate, to subjugate, to vanquish. The purpose of power can only be to do good. But sin is always at the doorstep, isn't it? And power can be misused very easily. As Pastor Gordon reminded us a couple of months ago, power inevitably corrupts those who have it. And then 2 King, Kings itself teaches us to be careful about what we ask for. Um, yes, um, Elisha engineered Jehu to become king, and so that immediate um, strategy paid off. As we read ahead in the, uh, the final chapters of 2 Kings, we learn Actually, Jehu wasn't much of an improvement over what went before. Yeah, they killed all the worshippers of Baal. But did that really solve Israel's fundamental problems? The message of 2 Kings is, no, it did not. It just did not. And so, it's another thing we have to keep in mind as we engage in change, in political change, that... You know, the best plans sometimes just don't work out. In fact, sometimes they become worse than the situation you started with. So what we look for Christians to be the community of reconciliation? We will use the power available to us, but we're always going to remember, hey, we're Christians, we believe in sin. We believe in even the best intentions can lead to really disastrous consequences. Again, think of the Crusades. I'm sure it sounded like a great idea back in the 990s when it was first proposed. You know, four or five centuries later, it must have seemed obvious, this is a really bad idea. Like, what, whatever led us to think this would work out good. Above all, this is my final point. What would it mean, what would it look like for the church, the Christian community, to be peacemakers, to be the community of reconciliation, I think we have to reconfigure the church. We have to rethink what church is. Instead of a place of polite silence, where we have a kind of a gentleman's agreement not to talk about stuff because we know it's going to be divisive, we would be a place of honest and charitable dialogue. 
Like, we would actually talk about important things. Uh, we would not be afraid to have public discussions of difficult issues. But we do so in the spirit of reconciliation, not in a quest for victory. I think we would have to become less homogenous. It was a very odd uh, consequence of, of um, mobility. Uh, you know, most churches these days are commuter churches. They draw members from a wide, a wide distance. And because people can travel, and do travel, to get to church, it means that people self-select which church they're going to go to. It seems obvious, right? If, you, if you're just not going to go to the closest church, you're going to pick a church that, well, you like. But what that usually boils down to is you pick a church that has people pretty much like you. The same color, the same ethnic status, the same socioeconomic status, roughly, the same political beliefs, or at least not too far away from your political beliefs. And so America today is characterized by especially Protestant Christianity, characterized by a shockingly homogenized congregations. Uh, we simply need more outreach to people who are not like us. Um, in Paul's day, this was congregations of Jews and Gentiles together in the same place. That's not our issue, but... We simply need more vigorous, intentional outreach to people who are distinctly not like us. And that includes politically not like us. Because we can't have a dialogue if we're all just talking to people who have the same view. That's not a dialogue. Finally, we should be a community of wisdom. We should strive to become a community of wisdom where we learn about and talk about God's project in the world and are called to be peacemakers. Like, this is what we should be about. Uh, Jesus did not die on the cross to help us with our emotional problems. Although I think Christianity has some wisdom here. If we look carefully at Colossians 1.10 and Ephesians chapter 2, the purpose of the cross was to bring all things together. And for Paul, the church is the place where this has to happen. And so this should be the thrust of our common life together. Um, and it's, it's big and it's manifold. There's various ways of doing it and talking about it. But what would it mean for the church to be peacemakers and a community of reconciliation? It's going to require us to be a community of dialogue, a community of diversity, and a community of Wisdom. Bless us. Bless us all. May we get there someday.